you may not be able to choose how you feel, but you can always choose, and not even just your attitude. Sometimes I think you can't even really choose that, but you can always choose how you're going to react to it. Welcome to Backseat Driver, the podcast hosted by two practicing psychotherapists, where we boil down years of experience with clients young and old to teach you how to do the what to do to improve your life and relationships. I'm Mark Yamada, clinical psychologist in Seattle. And I'm Nikki Bennett, licensed clinical social worker in Salt Lake City. So Sarah, I wanted to have you on the show because number one, I think you are just hilarious. I love your ability to laugh at yourself and not take yourself too seriously. But number two, you just inspire me because I know, number one, I feel like you get me. And number two, I just love how vulnerable you are and authentic you are and willing to own your stuff. And then also, I feel like you are so courageous and inspiring. So if you wouldn't mind sharing... Yeah, if you wouldn't mind sharing your story with us and with our listeners, um, sure. dealing with OCD and some of the hard things you've been through with your life and how you've learned to cope. In fact, just a little history, Mark. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any idea that Sarah struggled with anxiety or OCD at all. And how did I told you that I had kind of lost my mind, right? <laughs> all, all you said was, all you said was, I said something like, wow, that's so awesome. Do you walk a lot? And you were like, every day. I've got to do it for my mental health. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I just hit the jackpot. Because it was like right then, I was like, I was like, you do? And oh, you were like, yeah. and, I was, and I felt like I could be like, well, me too. Guess what? I need you too. <laughs> my new best friend. Yeah, exactly. We were. Yeah, we really hit it off. And it's been how many years? Six years. And we still walk yeah. together almost every day when things are normal. I come from a great family. I have a couple of older brothers. My parents divorced when I was probably around three or four. So I don't really remember them together at all. Um, as a, like a toddler, my mom didn't know what OCD was, of course. Not many people did. But I, I had some weird habits, like I would line toothbrushes up for you know no reason, line combs up, line underwear up put all the shorts on in my, in my drawer on, on top of each other, just because I felt like I should <laughs> like just weird stuff. Like she, and she took pictures of it. Like, wow, isn't this funny? And it was, and, but it was just like this weird kind of quirk I had. And I would like, I was like driven. She said, I would like be out of breath collecting all the toothbrushes and going one at a time into the living room, lining them up. And she was like, you work so hard. Why don't you just take a break? And I was kind of like, no, I can't. Um, so then, so there was that. So I was always very fastidious as a child. Um, I, I got, uh, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease, which is, um, a lymphoma kind of cancer when I was 13 and I had to do, I had to do, I was stage three. So I had to do chemotherapy for about, uh, turned into like eight months. And then I had to do radiation after that for like two months, probably. And it was kind of during this time when the OCD sort of started to rear its head in a more, um, I don't know, uh, I guess I would just say more noticeable way. I mean, I wasn't starting any necessarily harmful habits, but I would, I would do certain things. And, and it, it, may, it mainly began like once I was done with treatment. I was done with treatment. And then all of a sudden you get the fear that sets in of is the, all that you think of is, is, is it going to come back? When's it going to come back? You know, how long is this going to last that I'm supposedly like cancer free or healthy? Mm-hmm. And so I remember before I had a checkup, which at the first I'd have checkups every two months work that included, you know, a CAT scan, a blood test, this whole thing. And it was like a day long thing at, at primary children's hospital. And before we would go, I remember I would like recite things in my mind over and over. I would recite like certain scriptures. I would recite like certain, po- I mean, it was probably good. They were like positive mantra, like, like lyrics to songs, things like that. But I, I kind of had to do it in a certain way, in a certain order, a certain amount of times in order to feel like the day was going to be okay. Like, like it was like a talisman or something like that. If, so if I did it, then I'd, I'd be able to, the checkup would be okay. And I'd come home and life would still be normal. So I started to do that. 
And that, I mean, that kind of stuck with me for a while. Um, and then around, so that was, I was about 14, uh, 14 or 15. And then around like age 16, unknowingly, my thyroid got really, really high. It was already low. My thyroid hormone was already low because of the radiation. It had to do some around my neck area. So it was already low and I was on supplements. And then my thyroid had gotten too high. And I think it was the catalyst. I, I think it was the catalyst for my OCD getting really, really, really bad. I was 16 and I, and, and again, we didn't know it was too high or anything at the time, but I started to, it was, I was full on um, contamination content OCD. I was very, very, very scared specifically of AIDS. And I don't know if that's because I didn't know anybody with AIDS or anybody that was that was susceptible to AIDS or anything like that. It just seemed like the next worst thing or, or something, right? I don't know. It was just, it was just either the impression that I got when I was like in elementary school, when they were showing you these videos of the big, bad red blood vessel, red blood cell invading the nice white blood cells, picket fence. That just like stuck, stuck with me. And so then I, uh, I, I just developed a real fear of it. And that, and with that went any like fear of like any bodily fluid any, um, if I ever saw the color red, like crayon, marker, um, paint, something like that, I would get fixated on it and have to kind of try to decide if it was safe or not in a way. I mean, not like you're an authority on it, but yeah, you're always are wondering like, what is that red spot? Is it blood? You know, and then if it's blood, you got to do all these compulsions. You got to clean, maybe change your clothes, maybe take a shower, maybe take two showers. Anyway, so it got, that year was my junior year in high school, and it got really bad. I mean, I was using about, I was using a bar of soap a day in a shower. Do you I, think your friends and family knew, or were you able to hide that? Because I dealt with OCD on a, a different level, but I was pretty good at hiding it, I think, from anyone who didn't live in my immediate household. I think I, think I was able to hide it pretty well from my friends. I think maybe they just thought, like, sometimes I... I did maybe things that were weird or like I wouldn't, I mean, this didn't have to do with AIDS or anything, but I had a real issue with sitting in movie theater seats because I was afraid of head lice. And so I wouldn't sit back all the way and that drove them nuts. They were like, sit back. And I was like, no, I can't, you know, you could get head lice. And they're sitting there just, you know, relaxed, like who cares? <laughs> and you're so, so funny. You probably helped like soften it by, with your humor, I would imagine. Well, yeah, they'd be like, you look so uncomfortable. I'm like, no, no. I'm totally fine. But in the meantime, my neck was like getting a horrible crick in it because I'm leaning forward in like the front row of a movie seat, not touching the back, looking up at the so, I've done that myself. Yep. It was uncomfortable for sure. Um, so I don't think they really knew. I, do, I did have a friend once say in a half joking manner, she was like, you're a compulsive hand washer. And mm-hmm. I just, you have no idea. Yes, I am. And, but my family knew something weird was definitely going on. They were like, I was washing my hands for, you know, I wouldn't come out of the bathroom. My mom would hear the water just running and running and running and running and running. And it would be like steaming hot. And then like, I would not touch, I got, I didn't like to touch faucets and commonly used objects. So I would like use another object to turn on the light or take another object to flip up the faucet, something like that. And they, they just thought it was weird. And she uh, was worried about it. And she took me to a doctor, not like a, a mental health specialist or anything. She just took me to like a regular doctor. And he diagnosed it. He was like, you have something called obsessive compulsive disorder. And he asked me these questions, like, do you like to eat out at restaurants? And I was like, no. I mean, they were like, they were like standard common uh, questions that people with OCD suffered with. But I didn't know that. But I, everything he asked, I was like, yeah, I don't like to eat at restaurants. Yeah, I don't like this. And he was like, there's something this is called. This is actually a condition. Um, I didn't like getting diagnosed with something, though. I kind of wanted to just blame it on my mom, like that she wasn't clean enough for me. <laughs> and then uh, eventually it got to the point where um, I think one of my eyes was bulging a little bit. You couldn't see it just straight on. But like, 
if I tilted my head back or something, it was just like one eyelid was higher than the other. And you know, that of course bothered me. So I told my mom and I was, cause everything I read about every health issue. So we went to the doctor and they found out I had high hyperthyroid, which was making the eye bulge a little bit. And, but before that, before they found the thyroid was increased, they considered the possibility that there could be a tumor pressing on my eye. And that like, that like sent me into like a, I like, I like had a nervous breakdown. I, I remember I was, they had to come get me out of school. I was in high school by that time. I had to go get an MRI. I remember in the MRI crying uncontrollably and them keeps the doctors over the like intercom had to keep saying, if you don't, if you can't stop crying, we're going to have to sedate you because they're trying to get a picture oh of, you know, my head. And eventually I, I think I did just stop crying and they got the pictures. And then I, like, as soon as they were done, they're like, you're okay. You're fine. Everything's fine. And then I remember just crying because I was so relieved. It was just a mess. And, um, and so then they figured out it was the thyroid. They, they fixed the dose. And I think things got a bit better after that they weren't quite so out of control. So, um, just so relentless, the OCD wasn't quite so relentless, but it was, it was started. And I kind of think once it gets started, it's, it's kind of always there. I think you have times where you might be doing away really well and you're able to kind of talk to yourself and stuff. And then there's, and I, and honestly, I think it has a lot to do with the stress in your life. Anyway, things kind of got better once they adjusted the thyroid supplement. I remember the next year of high school wasn't nearly as hard. Like the, just, it just, it just wasn't so the OCD wasn't so relentless. I didn't first of all, I didn't have as quite so many obsessional thoughts, but then I, my compulsions went down a lot. And, mm -hmm. um, but I was going to say, I feel like once it gets started, it's kind of always there in the background, maybe having to do with the stress going on in your life at that time. Um, it can get, it can flare up. Do you find that, Mark? Is it is there usually like a trigger that really offsets the negative spiral? Because as Sarah said, she had some p p particular like maybe OCD behaviors of lining things up, but didn't really suffer the worries until she had cancer. Is that something you see a lot? Yeah. Actually, you see it sometimes two different ways. One is there's just kind of this general level of perhaps an anxious temperament and sometimes you can clearly see from Sarah's experiences that just your physiology and hormones and body functioning can also contribute to the experience of anxieties, particularly some of the physiological symptoms as well. But what tends to happen is our minds will grab stuff from the common life environment. So Sarah was lining up combs, toothbrushes, putting on layers of underwear. Those are all common things that are readily available in the world of childhood. So we're going to draw from that. And then the things about the movie theater, these are all very, very reasonable. And what I mean by reasonable is they follow some logic and reasoning, you know, such as there's an A part and a B part and a equals a C part. The problem with OCD is when it gets excessive, the reasoning is still there. It's just that it's excessive or it becomes unrealistic. So that's an important part when you think about OCD and trying to understand where it comes from or what you can do about it is there is a reasonableness to it. It's just that it's not very realistic once you cross the limit of it starting to impose upon your life. The, the other part is that a person may generally be going okay until there's some type of precipitating event. And if there's a precipitating event that cuts a person very deeply, then your mind and body are going to look for a way to take some of the pressure out, almost like uh, to, to deal with symptoms. Uh, the body has to find some channel to dissipate out the pressure. And that's often where symptoms will form. So when you sit down and really peel back the layers of the onion, for some people, you're going to actually be able to identify the etiology of how this started. Usually, it's going to always have some connection to stress as a trigger. 
or the cause. Okay. Okay, so Sarah, it sounds like things got a little better after that episode. Bring us back to what happened next. Yeah, so things, things got definitely better for the next few years. Um, I was in college, so this was probably, I was probably a freshman or sophomore in college, so this is two to three or four years later. Um, and I had one incident where I was walking to a class and there was something, there was like this, there was this brown liquid on the floor of the hallway of the building. And I walked past it and, you know, almost as soon as I walked past it, I started, this thought started, wait, did I step in it? Wait, what is that? And, you know, you want to, and I wanted to go back and check, but I was going to be late to my class. So I had to keep going, which is good, but I got to class. And I remember I didn't hear a word that that instructor said the whole time, the whole, the whole class time. I was just thinking about what that could have been. Like, was it Coke? Was it root beer? Was it some kind of bodily fluid, which was what I was afraid of. Um, and then it was, if I stepped in it and then I couldn't, I couldn't answer with certainty whether or not I had stepped in it. And so then I remember by the end of the class, I had already decided that I was going to, when I got home, throw my shoes away in, in the garbage because that was like the only solution and they were good shoes anyway. And, <laughs> and I remember, but I didn't care. I was like, I just, there's, there's no way to answer. I just have to throw my shoes away. And I, but I do remember uh, that years before when my mom had first taken me just to my regular doctor, not a therapist in any way. And he had said when I was 16, you know, there's a medicine that you can take for this. And I remember, I don't remember if he said Prozac or Paxil or whatever was the forerunner at the time. Um, but I do remember in that class having the thought, this is nuts. If there is something that can make me feel better and not do this, I should take the medicine. And you, knew, of, you knew it was problematic. Yeah. Well, I was just like, I could not stop thinking about it. And I could, I, I, I was just, I was fixated. I couldn't, I couldn't change the channel in my brain. It was just, I was just still totally on what was that? Did I step in it? And I don't, I'll never know. So just get rid of any evidence, get rid of the shoes. Mm -hmm. So, so I did, I went to that doctor who was still just my regular primary care doctor and told him and he put me on Prozac. And I remember, I don't remember the dosage of course or anything, but I do remember within a couple weeks, it felt like I had been let out of jail. I, um, I remember, I don't think I had been depressed, but the first thing that I remember after going on it was that it was a light, there was a lightning to my mood and just my outlook on life. Like it felt like some of that weight had kind of been lifted. But then the first time I noticed it having any effect on the OCD was uh, I uh, habitually, like if I touched something that I thought was contaminated, and I couldn't get somewhere to wash my hand quick enough, I would kind of hold that hand sort of away from my body until I could mm -hmm. get it washed. And then I remember there was one time where I, that happened, like I had touched like a, a doorknob or something that I thought was contaminated and I was going to wash my hands and then I forgot. And I remember it took like a while. It was like half an hour, 45 minutes. And then it was like, oh yeah, I was gonna wash my hands. And I forgot and I feel okay about it. Yeah. I don't feel, like, I don't feel like, oh my gosh, I forgot to wash my hands and I touched all this stuff. It was just this like, it's okay. I didn't wash my hands anyway. And, and so I stayed on that for about, I would say five to 10 years and it worked really well. But then when I started to have children after I got married, uh, it, that's when it, the cycle kind of started because I, you would get pregnant and the doctor would say, Oh, do you really need to still be on this medicine? And you know, it's not the best to stay on it. And you want to say, no, I don't need to stay on this medicine. I mean, yeah. I can go off. I can go off. You want to say that. So you do, you go off it. And then in there, invariably I would be okay through the pregnancy, but then I'd have the baby. I have four kids by the way. And I would have the baby. And about six weeks after having the baby, the OCD was, would just flare up. Like, it was almost like I'd fallen into a pit and I did not realize I was at the bottom till I was way 
<laughs> like I was at the bottom. And I, I know that feeling. Yeah. See how I, that it happened necessarily, but it was just like, it just happened like that. And then you're panicked because you're like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And then you are kind of like desperate for the magic pill to come back and help you. And I never, ever really did have a good experience going back on medicine like I did that very first time. Like, and I kept expecting that. I kept expecting, oh, I'll just take, you know, two or three weeks. It'll come. It'll come. I'll feel better. I'll feel better. This will go away. And I think on my third kid, when I tried to go back on the medicine after having a baby, it just did not work. And we kept increasing, increasing, increasing the Prozac and I didn't feel any better. And it was like six weeks. And finally I was like, do you think I had a, oh no, finally I said to my doctor, the same doctor that had been my doctor through cancer and everything. I finally said, do you think I need to go see a psychiatrist? And he said, yeah, I think that'd be a really good idea. And so I was 33. So this is, I'd been had OCD for, you know, all that time. This is the first time I ever went to like a professional about it. And I was really worried about it because you feel all the stigma that goes along with that of going to a psychiatrist and sort of having to admit that you've got this mental problem. And it was so easy. It was so nice. It was so nice to not have to explain myself. I went to the doctor and when I told him sort of what my obsessions and compulsions were, he just would nod and he was so like, he was familiar with it. And I didn't have to say, oh, well, I, I put that thing up on the shelf because I felt like it was contaminated. And, mm-hmm. I just, and, and with other people, I'd have to kind of keep going and be like, and I have to like make apology, apologize for it in a way. Like, I know it's stupid. I know it's stupid, but I do this. He just got it. I remember the first thing he said was he's like, because I, I had to clean. I remember we got robbed once and I, the guy had rifled through my jewelry and it took me months. I didn't want to throw away the jewelry that he didn't steal even though it was valuable. I didn't want to throw it away because it was like meaningful, but I couldn't touch it. And I finally, finally cleaned it. I can't remember with something not too abrasive, but I remember telling the doctor how stressful it was. And he was like, he goes, you had to get the bad juju off it. And I was like, (laughs) and I almost cried with relief because I was like, yes, I had to get the bad juju off it. Thank you. Like I was just like, <laughs> you finally it. saw you. Yes. <laughs> you understand me. Like, yeah, you, there's nothing on the jewelry you could see. Like, I remember my husband, I remember I had that jewelry box and I remember I opened it up once with him. And I remember my husband said to me, what do you think is in there? And I was like, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but I can't touch it. And but it's there, but it's there. It's there. Whatever. It is there. You may not be able to see it, but I know it's there. Yeah. The it, whatever it is. Um, the bad, the bad juju from the, from the robber. Um, so anyway, and that psychiatrist just, he just, I remember he just said, well, I just think the Prozac's pooped out on you. And he just switched me to Zoloft. And that worked great. I felt a lot better and then life just kind of went on swimmingly I think I only saw him maybe two or three more times um and then I had my fourth baby uh this is right before I met Nikki and I had my fourth baby and this one uh I had her and then kind of thinking the same thing would happen I was I was expecting that the OCD would get bad and that I'd get some postpartum depression as I always did but this time when I went back on medicine Zoloft and then Prozac and then all these others, I, there was no relief at all. There was, there was no relief. And it was, it was hard because I had been, I had, that had been kind of like my lifeline. Like if things get bad again, I can just go back on medicine and then it'll take the edge off. And it wasn't like the OCD ever totally went away. I guess I should say that it never did. It never does. You still have mm-hmm. these tendencies, but it just becomes more manageable which is huge. That's exactly um, how I feel about anxiety too. Whenever I see someone promising a miracle cure, I'm like, oh gosh, such false hope. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you just learn to deal with it and manage it better. What are some ways, what are some ways, Sarah, that you have found that work well for you? So, okay. And this, is just, this was actually just like the last couple of years because I finally, after, because this was four years where I felt horrible. It wasn't until my fourth child was like four years old before I started to feel any better. But um, 
And I remember Nikki, you telling me you were like, there's not a magic pill. And I hated hearing you say that. I was like, that's not true. That's not true. There is. I just have to find the right one. (laughs) There's so many. But I think the thing that helps the most is kind of, you know, like how people say in advance, like, decide now whether or not you're going to take drugs so that when you get offered drugs, you have the ready answer to say, no, I'm not going to take drugs. I feel like it's the same way with depression and anxiety. I feel like if you know you suffer from it or you're, you're, you are weak in that area a bit or susceptible, I feel like you got to have a a game plan. Like, okay. And you gotta, you gotta be able to know yourself. You're like, okay, I feel better when I'm around people. One, two, I feel better when I'm actively moving around, like exercising, you know, another thing I feel better when I'm interested. I know that if I start to get, if I start to obsess about something, I have got to figure a way to change the channel in my brain. And usually that's going to have to require me physically doing something else. I'm not going to be able to do it just, just by trying to change, change the topic in my brain. Mm -hmm. So I think once you start to kind of learn, um, uh, learn the things that, uh, that sort of help, I think that's like invaluable. Um, but the real turning point for me was, uh, I was kind of starting to feel better. This was about two years ago. And I remember I was taking my son to get some soccer equipment. And as we were walking into the store, there was, again, obviously not, this is, I, have a, I have an issue with brown liquid, obviously. But again, there was a brown something on the ground. It was probably chocolate milkshake. But because I didn't know that for certain, my mind just kept going. Anyway, we went in the store, we bought him his cleats. And then as we were leaving, I said to my son, I was like, now watch out. There's something on the sidewalk here that I don't know what it is and don't step in it. You know, so we went around it and we got in the, in the car and I remember like the come, I just started to get the urge of just, just go back and check, look at it again. Just look at it again. See if you can figure out what it is. Like I always had the, this kind of idea that if I looked at it long enough, I could decide that it was safe. I would see some kind of clue that would make it safe. And I could go, oh, phew, it is chocolate milkshake or, oh, phew, it is whatever. And then I could move on. And but don't it you find work. like it, it does make you feel better for a second, but then later you're like, wait, though, was it really? <laughs> yeah. Well, not even a second. It's like a millisecond. You're like, mm. oh, phew, it is chocolate milkshake. But then you're like, but wait. Anyway, and I remember I just kept going and checking. And then when I'd go check, I'd be like, wait a minute, am I getting too close? Did I just step in it? Like, and it just got worse yeah. and worse. And then I remember thinking, you know what, I will take a picture of it on my phone and then what I can go home and I can look at the picture. <laughs> I can oh, decide gosh. what it was. And, you know, I just remember this one time in particular, I was like, I heard a voice in my head that just was like, I, I was going to go back and check it again. I was going to park the car, get out and look at it again. And I remember I just, I just heard a voice in my head say, Sarah, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be death itself on the sidewalk. But if you go back and check again, you are more surely doomed than if you ever were to touch it. Uh, and, it gives me goosebumps. And that's like a long thing. But I remember that's, that's what I heard. And I remember I had to just force myself to get back in the van and drive away and accept the fact that it was going to be with me for a while. Like I had been seeing uh, cognitive behavioral therapists for a while now these for the four years after I had my baby because medicine wasn't working and they would keep telling me you know you just you kind of have to wait it out you you get a bad thought you get an obsession and you just kind of have to wait it out and the anxiety will go down and they kept telling me it will go down but I didn't believe them either because they always Mm -hmm. said oh 20 probably 20 minutes 20 minutes it'll get better oh you're like maybe 20 days yeah and I was anyway it, it never happened in 20 minutes so I was like this is bull I can't do it And so I remember just driving down the road. We were not far from my house. And I was just like, just keep driving. Just keep driving, keep moving. And we went home and I was thinking about it the the rest of the day. I had, you know, the thoughts of like, did I step in it? Should I throw away my shoes? I probably put them in the closet or something just so they were out of sight, out of mind for a while. And then I remember later in the night, I was watching a movie with my husband. And I, I remember I was like, oh yeah, I had like a crisis earlier today, but it's okay now. I feel okay. 
I, it's, it's gone. I don't have the urge anymore to throw away my shoes. I, I don't feel contaminated anymore, even though I, I had this really strong, crazy feeling that I was. And that was my first real experience, positive experience with what the therapist said would happen, happened where I was feeling high anxiety and it eventually did go down. And from then on, I'm not saying that it was easy, but just having the knowledge and the experience that it did happen helped for the future. Because when something would happen again, when I would be in a store and I would be like, oh, did I just step in that? Did I just touch that Kleenex? Did I just do whatever? Um, before it was like, I would be like, I would have to stop. And it was like, I had to fix it. I had to start over. It was like, oh, this, this trip to Costco is ruined. I got to go home. We'll come back another day when it's, you know, I'm not so anxious or whatever, which would never, that day never came. But I just, from then on, I kind of was like, I just, just keep moving, keep going, finish your shopping trip. You can think about it more when you get home. Yeah. Then, and that becomes the, the pivotal point, doesn't it, Sarah, where you've got to trust something that you haven't ever experienced before, that it's going to happen, that the things that you're hoping people are telling you that you're reading, I just got to hang on and endure and ride this out until it comes down or it comes down because I forget about it. To get yeah. to that point, that is just grueling. And so many people will not realize that we'll yield and give in to the anxiety sometime before we would have hit the threshold of breaking free for that first round. That's a tough call. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it just having the experience that, that I knew eventually, yes, I would feel better. And then it made it, and then it put it more in perspective for me because I had read the book brain lock probably two or three times by, I think his name Schwartz and I liked it, but I, but and, you know, and I'd have these times where I'm like, I'm going to do this. I am going to do this. I'm going to do his four or five steps or whatever it was. But invariably, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And so then um, I just think once you finally get the experience that, okay, yes, this can get better. This can go away. It's not real necessarily. This is OCD. It's not, it's not, it's not me. This is something separate from me. It's a, it's a disease that is separate, completely separate from me that I can deal with. That really helps. And there's, he says something in the book that has stayed with me since forever, ever since I read it. He said, he says, it doesn't matter how you feel. It matters what you do. And I loved it because I was just like, cause there's so many times in life where you just feel a certain way. You feel, you know, you feel con with OCD, you feel contaminated. You feel like you ran so over a child. You feel like this, you just have these, these, these nasty feelings that you're, they're horrible. This anxiety is horrible. Or even like if you feel angry or sad or, any kind of negative emotion. I like the whole idea that you may not be able to choose how you feel, but you can always choose and not even just your attitude. Sometimes I think you can't even really choose that, but you can always choose how you're going to react to it. And so it's like, if I'm feeling OCD, if I'm feeling contaminated or dirty or whatever, and I know through experience that if I turn around and check whatever I think I just stepped on, or if I wash my hands a third time or, or whatever it is, whatever compulsion it is, I know through experience, it is not going to fix it. Then I've got to be able to make the choice to not do it. I mean, I, that's helped me a ton. I don't know if it helps everybody, but it's it just has totally helped me a ton knowing that, knowing that the OCD is separate from me and I can choose whether or not I am going to give into it. And not, not being too hard on myself on the times that I do. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes, like, I really will be like, no. I'll be like, I'll be like no, I'll come home from somewhere. I'm like, I need to take a shower. Like, I visited somebody in the hospital the other day, and I was like, I got to take a shower when I get home. And that was probably more rational than not. But, but what I'm saying is that, like, sometimes I will be like, you know what, I'll, I'll just take a shower, and I'll feel better. And I can kind of tell where, when I'm like, and that'll be the end of it. Mm -hmm. But if it's one of those times where I'm like, no, I'm going to have to take a shower and then I'm going to have to bury my clothes <laughs> or like, you know, it'll just grow. If I know that it's, it's like one of those times 
where it's not going to stop. It's just going to grow to uh, another compulsion, to another compulsion, to another compulsion. It's not just going to stop with us. Yes, the door is locked or no, the door is not locked. Th then is the time where I'm, where I, I've got to, I've got to make that choice to know I can put, I can nip it in the bud and it will work, but it's yeah. going to be, I'm going to have to take, it's going to take some time and I'm just going to have to sit with it. You've but been through, yeah, you've been through so many repetitions of this that you're very familiar now about the kind of situations that would likely trigger you up or have and that you're likely to come across again, such as there could be another little mess of brown goo on the floor again, <laughs> right? So yeah. in a situation like that, uh, does it help yeah. you, this move to action to resist, Sarah, does it help you? to pre-decide sometimes, hey, if I come across a situation like this, I'm going to hold, you know, take, hold my breath, and I'm going to try to march on right through it and, and yeah. not look back. Do you pre-decide that sometimes? Yeah, I actually, I actually had to do this two weeks ago. Uh, we had a plumbing problem in this house we're staying at, and I hate, I hate anything having to do with plumbing. It, I just, I don't, the germs, like when the equipment that the plumber brings, I just, I imagine that where it's been and what could be on it. And it just drives me, it just drives me crazy. And then even after they leave, I'm like, I'm going to have to clean the carpets. I'm going to have to sanitize everywhere they were. And anyway, we had to call the plumber two weeks ago and I was all, I was all ready to have a fit. I was like, this is going to be awful. He's going to leave. I'm going to feel like the carpet's dirty. I'm going to feel like we need to get a carpet cleaner. I'm going to have to steam the floor. I, I knew already I was going to have to wipe all the doorknobs and whatever I think he may have touched. I, I was totally aware and informed of everything it was going to do to try to make me feel better. And I remember I had to go to an appointment that day and I was driving in the car worried about it. I was like, because you're also just like, I don't want to get bad again. I don't want my OCD to get bad again. And you're, you're almost more worried about that, that than anything. And you feel a little helpless. Like, this is just... I can't, I can't do this again. How do I do this? And I remember I said to myself, I was like, okay, Sarah, the answer is no. When you, when you think to yourself, okay, I'm going to, we're going to have to get the carpets cleaned. The answer is no. When I think to myself, um, I'm going to have to sanitize the door and everywhere that he went, the answer is no. Like kind of like what you said, just decide beforehand. The answer is just going to be no, Sarah. And there was some peace that came with that where I was just like, that's my rule. If I have a rule, that total, that helps. I can stick to it. If I have a rule, because OCD people love rules. We love lists. <laughs> totally. And, and so I'm like, if I, if I make a rule for myself, I will stick to it. But I had to decide, I had to decide beforehand. And it did. It turned out it was okay. It was okay. Um, and another thing that helped a lot, I, I think some OCDs have a real strong over- uh, over, uh, overactive sense of responsibility, I guess I would call it, where it's almost like the worst, whatever you're afraid of, it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily the disease or the germ or whatever it is that you're afraid of. You're afraid that it's going to be your fault, that you are going to be the one that tracks home AIDS or, or COVID or whatever, and somebody's going to get sick and it's going to be your fault, even though no one is ever going to be able to prove something like that. You have this heightened sense of responsibility. And I remember that was another like aha moment once where I was, again, I was like at the store, I had something happen where I, I can't remember if I stepped on something red or touched something red. And it was probably like a smushed flower petal on the floor. But I remember I was, I, I started to berate myself. Like I was like, Oh my gosh, Sarah, why didn't you watch where you were going? Like, I was like, why didn't you check before you walked down that aisle? And I started to get mad at myself. And then I was like, I remember thinking I was just walking here. I was just walking down the aisle and this came out of nowhere. And the, the idea that came was just, this is not my fault. I was just, I was just going through, I was just doing normal stuff. And that totally, helped that totally helped when I could just kind of take take the blame off of myself for like every little choice that I made so that I didn't I didn't always feel compelled to like fix it if that mm -hmm. makes sense. yeah yeah it's kind of like normalizing the interpretation 
that, you know, hey, that's just something that happens. Or even a normalization of your thinking would be, oh, well, if I did step on it, I was wearing shoes. And well, that's why we wear shoes, because it protects our feet. And by being able to put that type of thinking, it's a curious thing with this OCD is that it's like a attention excess hyperactivity. And you get so focused on something. However, this ability to focus so intensely on those negative things becomes where the excess happens. And this is where a little bit of the ADD would be helpful too, where if you could dilute that a bit so that you don't have such an excess focus on the negative, but increase a little more focus on the normative, that's what I hear you saying that you've been able Mm -hmm. to develop is you go, oh yeah, 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 yeah. My thinking is highly focused on all the potentials that are, I suppose they're 100% possible. The likelihood though is quite low and in most cases almost zero. And by running through that logic, you're able to grab hold of your mind back and then you can continue down walking down the aisle and realize, okay, I think I got this. Can you comment a bit about trusting your reasoning and how you were able to get that back? Um, I think, well, I remember uh, reading and probably in Brain Locker, one of the other half a dozen books that I read, that sometimes when, if you're unsure, like if you're in one of those situations where uh, you have an obsession comes or whatever, and you're not sure if it's rational or not, which happens because you already know you have a tendency to over overreact that if there's ever a situation like that, where there's a question to kind of look around your environment, see if anybody else is worried about it. And if the majority of people are not worried about it, then you probably shouldn't be worried about it. Um, And in the past I was always like, well, they're crazy. (laughs) I'm the only one that can see that this is a threat. Um, But, Mm -hmm. but that has helped since then to just realize that, you know what, there's so many of them and there's just one of me right here. Yeah. And, and if they all are not acting like we're in big trouble, then we're probably not in big trouble. Then it must be okay. Yeah. You know, it reminds me, Sarah, of a young guy that I once worked with who really struggled with the same kind of things you're describing. And he just happened to be a young guy that was very interested and skilled with computers. So I used a computer analogy of a two-factor authentication concept with him. And we found a couple of people that he trusted and he believed these are folks. And one was his father. You know, these are folks that in no way would they intentionally lead him astray. So he put this process in to place that you're describing the two-factor authentication that if he came to a situation where it was doubtful or he was struggling with an OCD moment then the rule was he was to check in in this case with his dad who would then offer a second authentication and if it didn't match his then he had to go with his dad's mm-hmm. and that became the rule to help him break through when he would get stuck in this yeah, I, I have that. And luckily, it's my husband. And I can say, when it's bad, I can say, do something can happen. And I'll say, do you think I need to clean after this? Do you think I need to, do you think I need to wipe the doorknobs after this person's been in the house? Or, or do you think I need to wash my kid's backpack or something like that? And, you know, invariably, he'll say no, which sometimes makes the trust go away a little bit, because I'm like, he's always going to say that. That's just his stock answer. But then I also have, and it doesn't, it's, it's not like it's a, an offensive thought or, or hurts my feelings in any way, but I'll think again to myself, yeah, but he's normal, Sarah. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I was going to say, you know, it's, like, yeah, I, I'll do that with my husband sometimes. And it's hard because reinforcement feeds OCD and makes it worse. So the more we reinforce, especially with kids, my mom used to get into that cycle with me. I promise you're not going to die. I promise you're okay. And like you said, Sarah, I'd feel okay for like a millisecond. And then I was like, but wait, are you sure? Are you sure? Did you just say that or did you not? But I will sometimes do that to my husband and he'll go, "Uh, is that really going to be helpful? 
And usually the answer is no, but sometimes it's yes. And I'll just say like, I just need one hit of crack. It's like crack cocaine to an OCD person. Just please, please, hit. please. Just a little tonight only. <laughs> just one hit. And like you said, Sarah, sometimes it actually does help. Yeah. Um, you mentioned COVID earlier. I'm curious how that has impacted you because we haven't talked a lot since then. So tell me what this experience has been like for you and where you're at today. And then maybe just some advice for our listeners on dealing with the COVID crisis, both those of us who are OCD and those of us who are not. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's totally interesting because right when quarantine started, I had about half a dozen people either text or call me and say, how are you doing? Like, <laughs> are, are you okay? Are you okay? And I was kind of, and surprisingly, I was like, yeah, I'm okay. I mean, and partly I think it was because it was almost like a, a boy cried wolf situation where like my whole life I've kind of cried wolf about stupid things like, Oh, there's a bandaid on the ground. Life is over. Oh, there's <laughs> 10 years ago with SARS. I was, I was afraid of SARS. And so it's like, I've gone through it so many times that now that it's real, it's almost like big deal. I mean, <laughs> that's, that sounds dumb, but I mean, even my mom, I remember visiting her and her saying to me, did you ever imagine we would be in a situation like this? And I yes, said, yes, a thousand times. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> yes, lots. And so to me, it was just kind of like, and then, and then there were interesting things. Like I remember being at the store and I was seeing people with their masks and their gloves and stuff. And I remember not feeling anxious, just feeling annoyed because I was like, you guys are all amateurs. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> like, I, I, like they'd have their mask on yet. They'd like sidle up by me to get their produce. And I was like, or like I'd see a lady with a, she was trying to get her, she was trying to push the buttons at an ATM machine using a Kleenex. And I wanted to be like, oh, honey, you, you're not doing it right. But I'm not going to show you how to do it. Like I just, just, just general annoyance of like, you guys have had no idea what it's like to be a germaphobe. And now you're all getting a taste of it. And I feel like I'm like seasoned, like. I just, it's already, it's already like ingrained. And, and so there's that that has actually made me feel okay about it. And then also, I think I have had, I think I've kind of learned that there really is not very much in life that you can control. It helps for you to think that you can. I mean, everybody likes to feel in control. And I think that's important that you still feel in control. But I think ultimately, sometimes you just need a reminder of like, you know, I don't, I don't really have control over anything and you certainly can't control a germ. And I mean, cause I've tried, believe me, I've tried. And so with COVID, I just kind of feel like, you know, quarantine is good. That's what everybody, you know, that's the recommendation. Uh, like, and with the CDC guidelines and stuff, I don't go beyond that. I've had people send me like YouTube videos of doctors, telling you how to empty your groceries after you get home from the store. Like you mark down your counter halfway and you put the dirty stuff on one side and the clean stuff on one side and you discard everything that like someone at the grocery store touched. And I remember watching that and I just, I didn't say anything to the person that sent it to me because I didn't want to hurt their feelings, but I wanted to say, this is nuts. If you start doing this kind of stuff, you're going to be in big trouble. This We're is all not going to be OCD. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is, this is not going to help COVID. This is just going to make you so that you, everything you do, you're going to question. You're never going to touch anything again without second guessing yourself. You know, you're just never. And, and so I, I like the fact that I can be a little more objective in what is normal and what is not. Um, like if I'm around somebody who's wiping everything down with a Clorox wipe, uh, that doesn't necessarily make me feel better because that's full of chemicals. And I'm almost like, you know what, I'm just assuming, I'd just assume rather sit on this chair that's been sitting outside for two hours than have you wipe it down before I sit in it because mm -hmm. then it's wet with chemicals. Anyway, I mean, so, so I've done well, I guess, I guess you could say. And I, I maybe, maybe even had COVID already because I had one of those crazy wild strokes <laughs> that people have Gosh. that are young that, uh, that was in April. And I had a bad cough the week before and I went and got tested for COVID and the test was negative. And then five days later, I had this crazy stroke and they wow. never find a reason. And then three weeks later, all this news started to come out about 
COVID causing strokes in people because it caused blood clots. So there again, I mean, that would have been so ironic if I was one of the first people to get it when I've been miss, you know, Chris about germs. But again, like I just, it just reinforces the, the belief in me that you just can't control everything. And you, you might as well give up sometimes. You might as well just give up. And so if I had any advice for people now that are dealing with COVID, I mean, I can only imagine the calls that doctors are getting right now asking to be prescribed something to take off the edge or therapists that, that are getting called now for people needing help because it's, it's so intense right now. And it's probably new to a lot of people. Like I think OCDs, I think by and large, we're probably doing better than most people because we've just, we've lived with the stress of it for of germophobia for so long that we're and the world's of, cleaner now right everybody's washing yeah. their hands now <laughs> yeah you're kind of like well thank goodness everybody's following our rules now we oh yeah yeah with so much hand washing going on we can't actually say hand washing is ocd anymore because everyone's doing it <laughs> i know they're normal i wanted to say to this therapist that i used to go to that she she once found two bottles of hand sanitizer in my purse and it was like she just found like stolen loot and she was just like, oh my gosh, you've got two. And I wanted to be like, yeah, I need a backup in case one is empty. And she was like, she wanted me to, she wanted to take them away right then. And I was just going to have to like, it was like boot camp. It was like, oh, <laughs> you will and, leave those at the door as you leave. Yeah. And now I want to be like, lady, those are like gold now. Nobody can get their hands on those. <laughs> I, I'm glad I had a stockpile because everybody wants them. Anyway, um. I would just I would just say to people that you don't you don't have control over most of your life and I know that's not something that is an easy thing to get comfortable with it's not like you just say okay I have no control phew move on I know that that's something that is like a lifelong thing to deal with but I think just trusting in yourself and in knowing that you're doing your best and as far as you know trying to protect your family and yourself as long as you're doing your best and you're following your own well-educated uh information that you've gotten i think again i think that takes a lot of the blame off of yourself a little bit where you're like if it happens it happens and sometimes just saying that is the hardest thing because you just just the imagine just just imagining the worst thing that you're afraid of happening is is worse than actually happening but i think sometimes if you can if you can go there if you can go to that place and just accept it there's a lot of there's a lot of peace and i think healing that comes with that too of just being like you know i will live however long i am supposed to live and i'm just going to trust that and mm -hmm. and move on with my life and I don't know if that would, I don't know if that would be helpful to people, but I, I do think just trying to take the pressure off is helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it certainly, Sarah has been very helpful for you from firsthand experience that when you can allow yourself and give yourself permission to forgive yourself or to relax or to be a little more flexible or casual about the approach, then all of a sudden that weight is gone. I also you know, really like what Nikki had said a few minutes ago about, you know, there just are some days where I just need the OCD, you know, the, the, the compulsive hit. I'm just going to do it. I am going to do it. And I think that that's completely okay. And when, when you do that, it's really helpful, though, to be totally aware that, okay, this is my OCD. I know it. I just am going to wash my hands a third time. And then tomorrow... I'm going to just start again. And I think that that can sometimes be helpful because you have probably been through situations where you have started so many times and said, this time, this time, this time, I am going to do it. And then, you know, you stumble and trip and you goof it up. And the important thing is you don't beat yourself up and you do what you can to silence that, that inner critic. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I almost felt like it made things worse if I tried to start a day out with like, okay, I am not going to give in to anything today. I felt like almost like within five minutes, it was like a situation popped up that was like, oh, really? Try this, you know? And so then it, it just, I just felt like it just, it, it just almost added pressure. Yeah. And I think too, 
I think too, you do kind of have to realize it is a little bit like an addiction. If you check, you feel better. If you wash your hands, you feel not, it's not permanent, but it does, Mm -hmm. it does make it go away for a little while. And like I used to say to my husband every night, are the doors locked? And even though I know he he could be lying or Mm -hmm. he could be so tired, he's incoherent. As long as I heard him say yes. Then it was okay. And I knew that about it. I was like, please just say yes. And then he'd be like, (laughs) because then you don't have to get up and check, but you're also off the hook. What would you tell our listeners to do if they have a loved one that struggles with OCD, whether it's a child, a spouse, parent, any advice? Oh, I would say try to be so patient. (laughs) I would just say it's not, it's not an easy fix. It's not something that, you know, you look at your watch and you're like, okay, this is long enough now. Let's come on, move on, move on, move to the next thing. You want to be able to do that. And they can't. Um, and it's not that they won't. I mean, I feel like a lot of times, I mean, I, I even, I have, I know people that have OCD, but their content's different than mine. They're worried about, they have more of the safety OCD where they're worried that they just accidentally poison somebody. I don't ever worry about hurting someone. I care more about myself, but um, I, and I don't understand. Like my, I have someone who's like, she, she gets fixated on cords on windows and worried that they're going to strangle somebody. And I can look at her and know, and, and realize I'm like, I don't know how you feel that way, but I know the feeling that she has. And, and I know she doesn't want it. And she doesn't choose to have it, but I, I guess I would just say to people that are having people that struggle with it to just be patient, to recognize that even though you don't have that challenge, you've got other ones that are different. And if, if you would like to be shown compassion for your challenges, um, try really hard to show compassion for somebody that has some that you just don't get. Mm-hmm. And, it, and that it could, it's not, it's not quick. It's not going to be a quick fix. It's, it's going to be a long time. And, and to maybe try to try to sit with that too. Just be like, you know, that this person has something that they don't like that makes them sometimes act like a jerk. Um, and, and try to have compassion, but then also to know that to try to keep yourself separate from it, because I know that there's also been a ton of times where I think just to keep the peace, like my husband would just give in to whatever I asked. It's like, would you please, would you please just take a shower? Would you please just wipe that down for me? Cause I'm not, I'm exhausted. Could you please just do it? I've wiped everything down. And I know sometimes he would just be like, all right. You know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't like it, mm-hmm. but he would just do it to keep the peace. And I think that's okay sometimes, but not all the time or else the OCD is going to rule the whole family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How much? I think so too. Yeah. How, how much Sarah has your husband over the years come to learn or understand more oh. about OCD? Because I think it could absolutely help, you know, loved ones of somebody who's suffering from OCD, if they could become much more, knowledgeable and educated about what it is and how to interpret it so that the frustration level goes down and the helping level goes up. I, I definitely, I would say they, they educate themselves as much as possible, whether reading books or even maybe going to a therapist themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I know, I mean, when mine was really bad, my husband was suffering because he did not know how to help. And he knew that I did not want to go to like some treatment center. But at the same time, he, he was like, I don't know what else to do. I, I, luckily, I never did have to. But he was kind of at his wit's end. And they're in, a, they're in a bind too because as much as you don't want to talk about it with people because it's embarrassing and you know they won't understand, they're kind of the same. But still, they kind of need to talk to somebody. They need to tell somebody, you know, my wife doesn't even want to go on a walk with me because she's afraid to go outside. Um, I guess I would, yeah, I would say educate yourselves. And I would say, I would say, I mean, luckily my husband and I, I kind of have a shorthand now that he knows so well what my triggers are 
that we can pretty much just laugh at it. Like if we're walking along the road and we see one of those plastic flossers that people like to use, I hate those, by the way, because all I can think of are bloody gums when I see them. <laughs> if, if, we, if we pass one of those, we just kind of share a private joke. Like there's one of those stupid flossers just out to haunt. Just, they're, they're just out to haunt you, Sarah. Like it's, it's just kind of a joke. And, and I, oh, and, and a sense of humor too. I mean, like, like even when he said to me when I was looking in the box of my jewelry, he's like, what do you think is in there? And I was just like, I don't know. And he could kind of have a sense of humor about it. Like, like, and he used to say stuff like, he'd catch me washing my hands and he'd say something like, did you get a little life on you? Did you get a little life on you? <laughs> and I'd be like, and I mean, I, it didn't necessarily like make me stop, but it helped. It was, it just kind of put some things in perspective. So I definitely think having a sense of humor about it is, is totally key because if you can never sometimes look, look outside of it at how weird your thought is, or even just to say it out loud, you're like, I am afraid that I stepped on something red. And now, even though I know in my mind that it's not possible, I'm afraid that AIDS is on my shoe and I'm going to drag it into the house. And then the next time somebody touches the ground, like my kid, when they're crawling, they're going to put AIDS in their mouth. <laughs> and if you can say it out loud sometimes and hear how ridiculous it is, because eventually you just kind of stop talking and you're like, yeah, that's what I'm afraid of. <laughs> I feel like every OCD client I've had and friend I've had has a sense of humor. Have you noticed that, Mark, that a lot of people with OCD have a sense of humor? Maybe it's because of their creativity. I don't know. Well, yeah. When I see that, it's not that when I first see somebody, they may not actually have that. So I would say no, that they don't always have a sense of humor. However, those that can be helped to either develop a sense of humor or draw out humor that they have that they haven't been using with OCD because they take it so seriously, those clients generally progress and adjust a lot better because humor has this wonderful way of bringing in just more positive energy, but also it tends to lighten up the over-seriousness of life that OCD can drive a person to. So absolutely, that if there's some fun you can make of a situation, laugh at yourself, you know, smile and laugh and make humor of other things too, not just about your OCD stuff. That's a protective factor and can serve you well. I think one of my favorite books I've ever read, Sarah, was recommended by you and it was Devil in the Details. Yeah. Yeah. Such a great book. A, a humorous book. Um, autobiography about OCD, right? Yeah. And hers, yeah, is totally different. She had kind of a, she had scrupulosity, I think. And I remember re recommending it to people that don't, like you, you had experience with anxiety, so you could get it. But mm -hmm. I remember like recommending it to people just, just purely on the humor factor, but because they didn't have experience with anxiety, I remember one friend was like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really like that book because, you know, she was sick. <laughs> and I was oh, like, wow. <laughs> and I was like, well, I know. <laughs> and it was funny, right? But she couldn't. <laughs> She couldn't, she couldn't appreciate it because she just, you know, she had, she wasn't, she'd never lived there. You got to uh, recite the, um, the comedy act to Mark that, that one scene, I can't even remember who the comedian is, but I think of you every time I see her and I just die laughing because you introduced me to her as well. Oh, is it Maria Bamford? Yes. It, um, I like, I can't, I probably can't do it word for word, but she just, my brother sent me a, a clip of hers once where she was just talking about how she goes to a she goes to a mental hospital and she's she's because she's a public figure somebody recognizes her and they're like they're kind of trying first they're kind of trying to ask her about it but then they're like oh but don't worry i, I would i'd never tell I'd, I'll, I'll never tell anybody that you're in here and she's like lady i'm in a institution in some green electric gripper socks that aren't my own and you and she's like you can tell whoever the f you want because all is lost and <laughs> i i love that because you can have you can have those times where you're just like i give up i'm nuts yeah it's over, it's over. and then and then you can move on the world doesn't end <laughs> yes thank you so much sarah do you have any questions for mark or mark do you have any more questions for sarah before we wrap up 
Oh, no, no. This has been wonderful to join in in the discussion and to have you on our show today, Sarah. Thank you so much for your insights for and your personal story is just so uh, much that people could relate to that I want to just thank you for sharing that. And by so doing, you know, our hope is that other people would be inspired to work at it and find the hope that there is help out there and there are things and you really can you know, have a more balanced, enjoyable life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And I would like people to take that away that to try not to be ashamed of it. Everybody's got stuff and people always tell you that it's like a, you know, just this universal placation. Everybody's got their stuff, but everybody, everybody does struggle with different things and OCD it doesn't have to be a curse. I, I do think there are strengths that come with it. Sometimes they're hard to channel for sure, especially if the negative aspects of it are controlling your life. But there's, there's really good things too. Really good things. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much, Sarah. I gosh, I miss You're you. You're welcome. I know I miss you too. Come home. I, I think we're, Ben's like, I'm out of here. I'm counting down the days. Come <laughs> <laughs> home to good old Salt Lake City. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Sarah. I love you. You're welcome. Thank you. Love you Take too. care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. And that's it for another Backseat Driver. If you found this podcast helpful, please share it with a friend. We'd really appreciate it if you'd take a minute to rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 